This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Nobody likes getting their car fixed. It always ends in a massive bill that you can't afford, especially at that time. And you've probably thought more than once, they're taking me for a ride, pun intended, because they think I don't know enough. It might not be just the mechanic. It could be anyone. A lot of young women say they're being targeted and they're over it. We're talking sexist repair jobs. We'll be getting into that later. Also, is there such a thing as an ethical billionaire? Because Taylor Swift, you might have seen the latest celebrity to join the world's richest club. We're going to be exploring the state of billionaires around the world. First, though. Hack. Israel has been bombing close to one of Gaza's major hospitals as it warns Palestinian doctors to leave the site. On Triple J. Let's check in with Gaza, where the situation just keeps getting more and more desperate. Thousands more people are dead. The UN is warning children in Gaza are facing a catastrophic situation because parents have no other choice but to give their kids salty water. And Israel has announced its move to the next phase of its war against Hamas, stepping up its ground attack. The protests calling for a ceasefire are getting louder around the world. Here in Australia today, six former prime ministers from both sides released a joint statement calling for the unconditional release of hostages held by Hamas and urging sustained humanitarian access for aid to reach innocent Palestinians. Look, there is a lot to catch up on from the weekend. Ellie Grounds has more. It was something that I have never, ever witnessed before in my life. More than three weeks into the Israel-Gaza war, the conflict is only continuing to escalate. The Israel Defence Forces is expanding its operations. We are moving to the next phase of our war against Hamas in Gaza, from the air, land and sea. Israeli soldiers are now on the ground in Gaza, in what appears to be the start of the full-scale ground invasion the world's been waiting for. In order to expose and destroy the enemy, there is no other way than to enter its territory with force. This action serves all the purposes of the war. Strikes from the air have also ramped up. As we have been on the Gaza border, intense bombardment from the air, but also from tanks that are inside Gaza, artillery fire, and also gun battles between Israeli troops and Hamas militants. And the humanitarian organisation Palestinian Red Crescent has reported strikes near the Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City, which Israel had warned should be evacuated. There are around 400 patients inside inside the hospital right now. And there are 12,000 internally displaced people from the area, Tal Hawa area, in which the hospital lies. We have people in intensive care units. We have infants in uh, incubators. We cannot move them. There are no means to move, to move them, not the vehicles, not the fuel, and the roads are totally destroyed. Israel has severely restricted the amount of humanitarian aid flowing into Gaza. Over the weekend, desperate Palestinians raided a United Nations warehouse, taking basic supplies like wheat and flour. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees called it a sign of breakdown in civil order. Israel claims its weekend operations hit more than 450 targets, including Hamas command centres. 
Hamas militants have killed around 1,400 Israelis and taken at least 239 hostage. Our fight is with Hamas, not with the people of Gaza. But the huge loss of civilian life in Gaza, with more than 8,000 people reportedly killed, more than 3,200 of those kids, has countries around the world urging Israel to reconsider its approach to this war. Here's US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Hamas is making life extremely difficult for Israel by taking civilians as human shields and by putting their rocket infrastructure and terrorist infrastructure among civilians. That creates an added burden for Israel, but it does not lessen Israel's responsibility under international humanitarian law to distinguish between terrorists and civilians and to protect the lives of innocent people. And that is the overwhelming majority of the people in Gaza. And this was Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong's response when asked if what we're seeing from Israel is a proportionate response to the Hamas attack on October the 7th. What I would say is we've said many times uh, that how Israel conducts this war matters. It has a right to defend itself, but the way it does so matters. And we've called for the protection of civilian lives. The United Nations General Assembly has passed a resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian truce and unhindered access to aid. It sent a message to everyone, enough is enough. This war has to stop. The carnage against our people has to stop. But Australia abstained from voting because the resolution didn't name Hamas as the group responsible for the attack on October the 7th. Hack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds with that update. So where are we at with all of these calls for a ceasefire? Do they actually mean anything? Well, let's find out. Jessica Ganawa is a senior lecturer in international relations at Flinders University and she's with me now. Hey, Jessica, thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, Dave, thanks for having me on. As we just heard from Ellie, uh, United Nations' call for an immediate ceasefire was overwhelmingly supported over the weekend. Will that actually make any difference, though? So this call for a ceasefire, this resolution that passed in the United Nations General Assembly, we can think of as more of a political statement than one that is actually going to be legally binding and have any effect over the parties that are actually involved in the conflict currently, which is primarily Israel and Hamas. And we can see that Israel themselves and also the United States voted no on that resolution. So, of course, it's going to be very hard to get to something like a ceasefire unless the parties that are directly involved in fighting are on board with that and are actually engaged themselves in negotiations to try to get there. I'm just wondering, Australia's been slammed by some for abstaining from that vote. Was that a controversial decision or a decision that really does put us at odds with allies? How do you see it? Well, it's quite interesting that Australia decided to abstain. And in some ways, I see it as Anthony Albanese and his government having to navigate this tricky line between, on the one hand, condemning that brutal attack by Hamas into Israel on October 7th, and also wanting to stand with one of our strongest security partners, which is the United States, who are standing, you know, quite strongly behind Israel in terms of what's happening. But then on the other hand, if we think about Anthony Albanese, the government, the Labor Party's kind of core constituencies, many of those people may also feel some kind of alignment with 
the perspective of the Palestinian people and sort of what's happening in terms of, you know, other types of factors that might be involved in this conflict. And so in some ways I see Australia abstaining as not wanting to vote yes, but also not wanting to vote no on that resolution. As the humanitarian situation gets more and more desperate, Jessica, do you think that the pressure is going to build on Western countries to do more to stop the fighting? I do believe, and we've already seen some of this occurring, that if the humanitarian situation in Gaza continues to deteriorate, that we will see increasing pressure on Israel and from countries that are Israel's sort of partners and allies around the world to ensure that that humanitarian situation can be relieved. You've been looking as well into the conflict and how it could have ramifications uh, in the greater Middle East region. Is there um, a risk, in your opinion, that we could see neighbouring countries join in in this fighting? I mean, unfortunately, there is a risk in that regard. This is quite a fragile and volatile situation, not only the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, but also in terms of the broader regional conflict and or regional situation. And we do have, for example, Hezbollah that are a kind of a political but also militant group in Lebanon who have been engaging with clashes with Israel on the Lebanon-Israeli border. And there's some fears that that could escalate and maybe Hezbollah could become involved, you know, more directly in a conflict with Israel, which would then drag Lebanon into a direct conflict with Israel. We've also seen some, you know, activity from within Syrian territory, where some rockets have been fired into Israel and there have been some strikes back into Syrian territory. So whilst I don't think that the current Syrian regime would in any way want to engage in a direct military conflict with Israel, we could see some kind of broader escalation if the tensions continue to rise in the way that they've been doing over the past few weeks. We do appreciate you keeping us across it. Dr Jessica Ganau from Flinders University, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me on. Hack. A lot of people do the right thing. There still are those mechanics that do the wrong thing because they're just money orientated and they don't care who they rip off. On Triple Jack. Yeah, we're going to switch gears and this story might rev you up a bit and they're just a few puns. I've got many more coming, so... I need to ask, have you ever been ripped off at a mechanic? I know heaps of you are nodding your heads. (laughs) Maybe it's happened to you this week. But do you think you got ripped off because the mechanic's assuming you don't know anything about cars because you're a woman? You've been quoted some ridiculous price, but then your dad or your partner gets on the phone and all of a sudden the price changes. It drops significantly. Has this happened to you? Message in 0439757555. You can call in to 1300 It's something reporter Keely Johnson noticed herself and she's been looking into it for hack. I'd finished a class at uni, jumped in my car to head home, turned the key just to find that it wouldn't start. 
I'm in my early 20s. I've got no idea about the inner workings of cars. So, as you do, I called my dad for advice and he thought my starter motor was shot and it needed replacing. I rang a mechanic and was quoted about $650 for the work. Dad thought that price sounded a bit steep, so he decided to call himself and he was quoted $200 less than I was. Turns out I'm not alone. I shared my experience on social media and dozens of people got in touch with similar stories. 24-year-old Rose also had a pretty crappy experience. They called me and said, hey, it's actually going to be you know, $3,000. We need to give you an entirely new radiator. Rose started panicking. Oh, my goodness. You know, firstly, that's a lot of money. But equally, who was I to tell them that they were wrong? So I reached out. My boyfriend at the time, thankfully, was very mechanical and um, reached out to them and got them to explain it to him. And suddenly when he was on the phone, I no longer needed all of this work to be done. Rose says it felt like the mechanic was trying to take advantage of her just because she's young and isn't into cars. You get charged a girl tax. You walk in and, you know, I drive a ute. So they think, okay, great, we can, you know, put it over her. She either doesn't know what she's talking about. She's this ditzy blonde that will have no idea and we can put whatever we want on this invoice or tell her that things need to be done when potentially they don't. Melissa Hardwick is a qualified mechanic and runs her own business in Sydney's Inner West. She gets heaps of customers coming to her after a bad experience elsewhere. There are mechanics out there uh, that do do the right thing and do have great reputation for, for people, but there is that still small handful that unfortunately do the wrong thing and they just don't care. And they're the ones that give us the bad industry and put the bad taste in everyone's mouth. Melissa's advice is to get a clear understanding of the work your car needs and exactly how much you'll need to pay. The customer gets a phone call and gets told they need all this work, but you're not explaining why they need the work. Why? What's going on with the car? So some people feel like they're like, okay, well, that, that's a little bit too steep or that's a little bit, um, I'm not understanding or that sounds a bit expensive. And you've got every right to go and get a second opinion to treat every single customer with dignity and respect and don't treat anybody like an idiot. That's Jeff Willem. He's the chief executive of the Motor Trades Association of Australia. And Jeff reckons there's no reason that people should be treated differently by a mechanic. And to make sure that if somebody needs the repairer to go through and explain in detail why a repair's been carried out, um, then they should do that. You know, what we don't want to see is repairers uh, telling people they don't know what they're doing or it's about the way they're driving the car. So, should you worry if your bill is more than you expected? Well, Jeff says it's best to try and bring it up with the mechanic first. Look, often mechanics, you know, will just fix small things on cars and not even charge consumers for that. But sometimes where things get out of control is where a repairer, you know, a mechanic does work on a car and doesn't talk to the consumer about that before they do the work. Now, often that's done in good faith. It's done because the mechanic's got the car, you know, on the hoist and they can fix it quickly, but it doesn't help when the consumer gets a bill they weren't expecting it. And he strongly recommends shopping around for a good mechanic. Ask your friends, check reviews. You know, word of mouth in the automotive industry is a fantastic thing. And if somebody local to use had a really good experience at a dealership or a panel beater or a mechanic, then, you know, that, that's always a great starting point. 
I ended up asking a few friends and colleagues if they had someone they'd recommend. And through their tips, I found a great local mechanic. You know, he'll often find time to fit me in. He's really affordable. But most importantly, he's a lovely guy who's never made me feel stupid for not understanding what's wrong with my car. And Rose has found someone good too. I've recently found a mechanic that I can trust and will actively actually explain what they've done to my car on paper. So when they print out the invoice, they make sure that I actually understand what they've done and why they've done it, which I found really useful. Hack on Triple J. Keely Johnson there with that story. So many people messaging in. Someone says, this just happened to me. My car died this afternoon after work. Price quoted seemed really steep. And it was, according to my interstate cousin, who is a mechanic, I think this is morally wrong, especially in the crisis we're in. Someone else says, I was getting ripped off, ended up getting my car towed from the mechanic in worse condition than it started. Heap of people on Instagram as well. We've put a post up there and so many people have their experiences. Ella says, unfortunately, not every woman has a father or a male figure in their life to help them in situations like this. It does make it extremely hard. Grace says, went to one mechanic and they wanted to charge me nearly 700 for work. I said no. Went to another mechanic, charged me 180 for the same job. It's a lot of experiences. Sarah is on the line from Hobart. Hey, Sarah, what was your experience with the mechanic? Right. So my car was always serviced at the dealership uh, and it was due for what I was told was a timing belt change and they quoted me uh, $2,000 to have that done um, and I was just talking to um, a mechanic friend of mine who said my car has a timing chain and didn't actually need a timing belt change right. at all uh, and the same mechanic also told me at a, a later date that uh, I needed to change my turbo and it was going to cost me $6,000 um, and I at that point I had a, had a gut for went back to my mechanic friend and he said, I'll do, I'll fix it 180 bucks. Oh, Did not need a turbo. And that was a major dealership. So that was really disappointing. Yeah. It's so disappointing, Sarah. You're not alone. There are so many people on the text line calling in right now who are saying exactly the same thing. Someone says the girl tax is real. I've been ripped off at least 10 times and I'm an engineer. It's so frustrating. That was from Amy from Wurundjeri land. Someone else, though, says, as a lifetime honest mechanic, this cuts me deep. I've never ripped anyone off, male or female. Sometimes it's an awkward situation when your car's a piece of shit that needs a lot of work. But that's not my fault. Same price for you and your dad, but it's likely going to be more dollars if you're a dick. Well, hey, that's one mechanic's view there. But I must say, overwhelmingly, so many young women especially getting in touch uh, with their really horrible experiences. Amanda says it's not just mechanics, plumbers, electricians, builders all do the same thing too. Brooke, though, says, I'm so happy with my mechanic. I was having issues with my car and initially they thought it was a starter motor. Upon closer inspection, turned out to be something to do with a timing belt. Came under the warranty from my last visit. They apologised, reassured me it was under warranty. It honestly pays to find a good mechanic. Yeah, well, that's the advice that people have got. It's good to shop around, good to look at reviews, word of mouth. If you want to see more, Hack's got a post up on Instagram. Go check it out. You can add your stories there. We'll definitely be diving back into this one. Time to move on. Hack. Taylor Swift is officially a billionaire. On Triple J. 
Yeah, we're used to hearing about Taylor Swift smashing records. And over the weekend, you might have heard of another huge achievement. Taylor's reportedly now a billionaire. She's clocked over to a 10-figure fortune. And nearly all of that has been made from her music, which apparently is pretty rare for artists. So as one of the most popular people in the world, does anything change now she's got the billionaire label? And more than that, how many billionaires do we have? And can you be an ethical one? Because that's a question a lot of people ask. Well, Professor Carl Rhodes is the Dean of the Business School at UTS. He's also got a book coming out and it's called The Myths of the Good Billionaire. Hey, Carl, thanks for coming on Hack. Absolutely my pleasure. Is there such a thing as an ethical billionaire? There are different individuals, you know. I think the question really is, why, how, why have we produced a system that produces billionaires that represent such growing inequality? So I think the fact that billionaires exist is not a great thing because it does represent inequality. I don't want to be casting moral aspersions on Taylor Swift. Uh, her fans <laughs> might come after me for that. I definitely will. <laughs> I mean, we know it's a tough time for a lot of people out there. Cost of living crisis, we cover it all the time on Hack. Mm. What's it like at the other end of the spectrum, though, around the world? Are billionaires uh, also struggling? I doubt it. Or are they growing in numbers? They're growing in numbers and the average amount of money they own is also is growing. So there really is just more billionaires around. And, and, you know, even during COVID, especially the number of billionaires grew by 13.4% when the rest of us were, were struggling. If you think of it this year, according to Forbes magazine, there are 2,640 billionaires in the world today. Back in 2009, it was 793. So it's just a massively growing phenomenon, these kind of people who have this extreme, you might even say obscene amount of wealth. Yeah, it's a lot more than I would have expected, actually. And I guess it raises the point, why do we know so much about some billionaires, whether it's Elon Musk, and then obviously there are so many we don't know anything about. Yeah, I mean, the one people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are very uh, prominent, but they're on the top, you know, they're in the top 10 list, if you like. So that, that makes them more prominent. They're also associated with brands that most people are familiar with. And they're a little bit more prominent for that reason. And self-publicity on their part can play a big part. When now you mentioned Elon. Yeah, that's true, actually. How do we place in Australia? Have we got quite a few billionaires here? Um, yeah, there's quite a few billionaires in Australia, not um, as many as elsewhere, just over 250 or 200 or so billionaires in Australia. It kind of depends how you count them and whether it's Australian billionaires in Australian dollars or in US dollars or whatever the case may be. But there is still uh, quite a, a number of them. You know, n- number one on the list is Gina Reinhardt, the, the mining magnate. But mining is a big thing. Twiggy Forrest, Tech, uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks, and a variety of other people kind of going down the line. So, yeah, we got our fair share. I want to get back into this uh, discussion around the ethics of being a billionaire. I mean, I've heard you talk about a moralisation of billionaires. Mm. What do you mean by that? What I mean is... We live in a system of massive inequality. So Taylor Swift has $1.1 billion. You know, good for her. She earned that one way or another, right? But what do you do with that money? Like, if your income doubled, you might drive a nicer car, live in a nicer house, drink a better quality of wine. If your income increased by 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 times, there's a limit to what you can do. So, you know, it doesn't really kind of make any difference after a while. The, The money is just there. 
But what it represents is the fact that the world is becoming increasingly unequal. It's becoming increasingly unequal within countries, Australia being an example, you know, who can afford to buy a house these days if they're young and they're not born into a rich family. It's unequal between countries. It's unequal between men and women. It's unequal if you're indigenous. It's unequal if you're a migrant. It's unequal if you come from a minority. So we have all of this, this uh, inequality. Yet at the same time, many people see billionaires who represent this equality. Again, nothing against them personally, but they represent a system of inequality, and many people worship them. The musketeers, they love the guy. I mean, Taylor Swift, they don't like her because she's rich, so that's a kind of different thing. Um, a question of musical taste, which we can go into if you wish. But <laughs> we have this situation where billionaires seem to be geniuses. Donald Trump used to tell us all the time what a genius he was. Elon Musk has the, the same thing. And many of them are very philanthropic, giving away loads of money. They must be great. And it kind of helps justify the fact that we live in an unequal society. And in my view, it, it masks the real politics and prevents us from dealing with economic inequality as what I see as one of the major, if not the major, political issue of our time. Do you think that idea of respecting maybe very rich people comes from the concept of a meritocracy where we believe that anyone can get there if you work hard enough? That's an interesting question. Taylor Swift, clearly talented, lots of people like her. But there are many other talented people, maybe not as many who, who, who like them. But the idea of meritocracy, so if we assume then that all billionaires are billionaires because of merit, why uh, is the majority, the group most represented amongst the billionaire class, white American men who live in New York City? What, are you somehow more meritorious because you have these characteristics than if you're some, you know, a woman from the global south? It's not a fair system. People don't necessarily arise just because of merit. And even if they did, is meritocracy a good idea anyway? If you're born with natural talents and skills and a propensity to hard work, and I'm not, okay, I, I, I don't have those skills, does that mean you should have a great life and I can't afford to send my kids to the dentist? That doesn't seem fair. Interesting. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Professor Carl Rhodes about billionaires and if there's such a thing as an ethical billionaire, we're discussing all of the uh, ideas around this. I mean, Carl, there's probably people listening now going, oh, well, maybe you or anyone who is critical of this idea is just jealous that uh, we love to hate on people who do well in life. How yep. would you respond to that? It's complete nonsense. Well, firstly, I'm not jealous. I have no <laughs> aspiration to be like any of these people personally. But this thing, Scott Morrison used to bang on about it endlessly, right? He used to call it the politics of envy, the idea that we're somehow envious of rich people. The idea that a belief in equality, the idea that the wealth created by a nation should lead to shared prosperity rather than a small number of people prospering and another people not, that's not envy, that's justice. And that's what our society seems to have been forgotten as we increasingly have become individualistic uh, in our view and not looking at the benefit for the community and for everyone and caring about other people, not just people caring about themselves. I guess there are some ideas out there that maybe we shouldn't have billionaires, that there should be some kind of a cap on wealth. Is that something you've kind of explored in the research for your book? I mean, my, my book's more looking at billionaires as a, as a kind of cultural phenomenon. However, 
Many people have looked at this and looked at, at, at uh, tax, probably most famously Thomas Piketty, um, who advocates for a global wealth tax and massively high income tax above a thresh- certain threshold. We still need people to have incentives to work hard. So there's always going to be a level of inequality in a liberal democratic society. Otherwise, some people wouldn't go that extra mile to achieve more. The question is how much? And in fact, it's not a pie-in-the-sky idea. That is the kind of you know, welfare state system that was set up in countries like Australia and the UK, to a lesser extent the US, in the period following World War II, which it was the growth of the middle classes considered generally to, to be a great era of prosperity that was relatively well shared compared to other eras. So there's, his, there's history about this. For your younger listeners, you know, it's beyond your lifetime. There were different systems to the one the one we have, and it is possible to live in a fairer society than, than what we do. Do you think Taylor Swift's going to make a good billionaire, Carl? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think she makes songs that a lot of people <laughs> like. Well, often billionaires give a lot of their money away um, uh, um, uh, at the end, so we'll see if she starts engaging in some large-scale uh, philanthropy or not, but... Uh, Time will tell. I believe she hasn't commented on her newly found status yet. So let's see how that goes. I wonder what it does for the popularity when you get that label. Who knows? Professor Carl Rhodes from the Business School at UTS. Appreciate you coming on Hack. Look, thanks so much. Great to be here. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.